When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 204 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Aratora Sports Podcast. Great show for you today. We have a ton of college hoops off the top. The, the great thing about this time of year, the ACC Big Ten Challenge is now complete. We obviously had the Thanksgiving tournaments last week, and I think we're really starting to get a feel for what this college basketball season is going to look like, and we learned a ton the last few nights. We're going to recap the entire ACC Big Ten Challenge. I can tell you this right now. Duke's really good. I hate to say it. A lot of you don't like me to say it. Duke's good. Michigan State stinks. Ohio State, good. North Carolina, they could be in real trouble. Virginia can't score. We're going to get into all of that. Plus, we're even going to venture away from the ACC Big Ten Challenge and to the Big East where, I can't believe I'm saying this, DePaul is actually really good this year. They win in overtime against Texas Tech. We will get into that. We'll then transition to football. My buddy Jacob Hester, if you remember him, I had him on earlier in the football season. He is an LSU alum, very much an LSU legend. He played at LSU. Uh, won a national championship there in 2007 as a team captain, played in the NFL, and he joins me to talk about the SEC championship game in football this weekend. So much to get into there. He gives unbelievable insight. He will be in Atlanta, and I wrap talking a little bit about Clay Helton returning to USC, and I give you my picks for the conference championship games, but really heavy college hoops to start. And before we get going, I want to remind everybody, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. Podcast Addict, if you have an Android, Podcast Addict is where you want to get this show. Tune in radio, Spotify, Pod Paradise, Podbean, wherever you listen to shows, you can get this. Also, please make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Uh, also, follow me on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And again, if you're going to be in Vegas, we may have, by the way, a top five matchup in Vegas between Ohio State and Kentucky based on what we saw from Ohio State this evening. So if you're going to be there, let me know. We are doing a get together for the listeners of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast in Vegas. It will be the day before the Ohio State-Kentucky game, December 20th. I will get you details soon. We are finalizing things. We're getting drink specials set up. I'm hopefully going to have some apps there for you. Uh, it's going to be a great thing. It's going to be an awesome thing. So let me know if you're going to be in Vegas. Hit me up. Email me. You can DM me on Twitter. Many of you have. 
DM me, slide into those DMs, if you will, uh, on Instagram. Listen, I don't mind. My wife doesn't mind because you know what? We're going to throw a good party in Vegas. Let me know if you will be there. It's going to be really fun. Uh, Again, Vegas, December 20th, the Aaron Torres podcast. We are throwing a little party, but enough small talk. Let's talk some ACC Big Ten Challenge, and I'll start with the game that happened on Wednesday night, the most recent game as you guys wake up here on Thursday. The story in college basketball right now is Ohio State, North Carolina, and Ohio State went to Chapel Hill and put a butt whooping on North Carolina. Final score 74 to 49. My math is not great, but that's a 25 point win for Ohio State in Chapel Hill. Shout out to Chris Holtman. Shout out to Ohio State. They are for real. This was the worst home loss of the Roy Williams era. Worst home loss in Chapel Hill. This is the worst loss for North Carolina, period, since 2013. And we're going to get to Ohio State in a minute. But I think the story here is North Carolina. And it's so funny, right? Because I did on Sunday show, Monday show, I did where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. And in the preseason, this was my big thing. Did North Carolina have enough outside of Cole Anthony to win at the highest level, which is obviously the expectation at North Carolina. And I gave North Carolina a little bit of a slack because they went to the Bahamas, they went 2-1, and one, and other guys did step up besides Cole Anthony, Armando Bacot, or Armando Bacot, excuse me, the, the, the freshman forward. Garrison Brooks has looked pretty good, but is that still enough to win at the highest level? And the answer is probably no. And to fully understand North Carolina's plight, I do think we have to go back to last year because I think people forget how good that team was, a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, a team that they ended up losing in the Sweet 16 to Auburn. But that was a team that had three first-round draft picks with Kobe White, Nasir Little, and Cameron Johnson, plus Luke May. And whether you love Luke May or hate him, and I know a lot of people listening hate him because they're Kentucky fans and Luke May, we all know what happened. I'm not going to get into it. But whether you love those guys or hate them, That was a really talented group. Luke May was probably one of the most successful players in Carolina history, even if he isn't the traditional kind of future NBA star like Michael Jordan or Jerry Stackhouse or Rasheed Wallace or whoever. And so North Carolina lost a ton coming into this season. And this is why right here, right now, I had questions and concerns about this team. And this is why I picked Cole Anthony to win National Player of the Year, because I said, this is a freshman. The ball is going to be in his hands. And not only... Did the ball need to be in his hands? Not only is he going to score a lot because he's capable, but North Carolina is going to need it. And so I gave North Carolina a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because Garrison Brooks has improved. Armando Baycott looked pretty good in the Bahamas. But then I think it all came to a head on Wednesday night against Ohio State because you know what happened? We saw what happens when one of those three guys doesn't play well. And this was my realization about North Carolina is that they basically, if you watch that team, that team has four guys, tops, four guys total at the University of North Carolina who I believe are ACC caliber players. Cole Anthony, the two front court guys I mentioned, Armando Baycott and Garrison Brooks, and Brandon Robinson, who's kind of like a fringe, like he should be like the sixth man on this team, but he's being asked to do a lot. Those are the only four guys, in my opinion, on this roster that I truly believe are ACC caliber players that you can go to war with on the road, at home, in the ACC, in those big games. 
North Carolina used to have a roster full of those guys. They had a roster full of them last year. I think they've got four guys right now that are capable of playing at an ACC level against elite competition. And when one of those guys does not play well, you see what you saw on Wednesday night against Ohio State. And by the way, this wasn't the first time that this happened this year with North Carolina. If you go back to their opener against against Notre Dame, Cole Anthony had 34 points. If he didn't, he he didn't go off for 34 because he felt like it. He went off for 34 because they needed it. Before they went to the Bahamas, they played Elon. I don't even know what Elon is. I never even heard of it. Elon was up at Chapel Hill at halftime. North Carolina comes back to win. North Carolina goes to the Bahamas. They get smoked by Michigan. They rally to beat Oregon. And then they get smoked again by Ohio State. But it comes back to what I said. I don't think they're very good. They have four guys right now that are good enough to play at the ACC level. And what happens is when one of the, if all four of those guys aren't locked in, they can pretty much lose to anybody left on the schedule. And we saw on Wednesday night what happens when one of them isn't locked in. That was Armando Baycott. He got hurt, hurt his ankle, had to be helped off the floor. Roy Williams says he could be out an extended period of time. And North Carolina was a mess without him. And so I'll tell you guys right now, Sometimes there are things throughout the course of a season that are fixable, right? Like, like, like we'll get into Michigan State in a second. Michigan State, I think at times, just misses a lot of wide open shots that, that I think at some point are going to fall. I think Michigan State has fixable issues, which we'll get into in a minute. I don't think this is fixable for North Carolina. I don't know where they're going to get scoring from because they don't have the guys to do it. And it's so fascinating to me, and this is something I harped on in the preseason, but I'll say it again. I'm going to hammer this home all year long into the offseason, into next season. Cole Anthony's awesome. We get that. He's going to be an All-American. He might be ACC Player of the Year, although Vernon Carey's looking really good right now, which we'll get to Vernon Carey in a minute. But keep in mind that North Carolina is relying heavily on two grad transfers, one from Charleston Southern, one from William & Mary. And I bang this drum all offseason long. It is a lot to ask of low major and mid-major players to step up and play at the high major level. And we are seeing that with North Carolina where they have two grad transfers that they were hoping were going to be difference makers. They can't even play them. They're not good. They're named Justin Pierce and Christian Keeling. Guess what? Justin Pierce and Christian Keeling combined for nine points. These were guys that averaged 30 per game at the mid-major level. They can't play at this level. And so I don't think this gets better for North Carolina. I don't think this gets fixed. Now, what does it all mean in the big picture? Listen, we're starting to figure out who are the real teams here and who aren't. We're, we're arguing, is this a year in college football or college basketball where there's great teams where there aren't great teams? I think Ohio State's really good. I think Louisville's really good. I think Duke is really good. I think Michigan is really good. I think Kentucky has the chance to get there. I still believe in Michigan State, even though we're going to get to them in a second. You know who I don't believe in, though, is North Carolina, because I don't know how this gets better. I don't think it helps that Armando Baycott may be out for an extended period of time. And I just think this is one of those years where we might just have to accept North Carolina just might not be very good this year. We'll continue to watch it. We'll continue to monitor it. Obviously, for those of you who are going to join me in Vegas in December, December 20th, December 21st, we're going to see North Carolina in person, but I don't think this is getting fixed anytime soon. Really quick, 
we do need to give credit to the Ohio State Buckeyes because I'm telling you, man, this team is for real. And I told you, listen, I watched their first game against Cincinnati. They didn't even play great against Cincinnati, but you could see all the pieces were there. And then it all clicked together in that win. They played Villanova early in the season and destroyed Villanova. And I actually think Villanova is pretty good. Ohio State has all the pieces. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and break down their jet chart and tell you what works and what doesn't and this and that and the other thing. But I'm just going to tell you right now, they got four or five guards that are all really good. Like, I think of this, of everyone on the court on Wednesday night, Cole Anthony was the best guard. And then, like, the next five best guards were probably all playing for Ohio State. C.J. Walker's a stud. Dwayne Washington at 18 points. Luther Muhammad's really good. DJ Carton is a top 40 prospect coming off the bench. So you look at them. They have size. They have shooting. They have vets. They play defense. And so I'm just telling you right now, we don't have to spend all freaking day breaking down the depth chart and the two, you know, of Ohio State. But I'm just telling you right now, that is a real team. They are going to be in the mix all year. I'm not kidding when I say they could win the the Big Ten. They could potentially uh, get a number one seed. They could be in Atlanta at the Final Four. I'm not joking when I say that Chris Holtman has this thing rolling. This wasn't a one-game aberration. You don't go to Chapel Hill, no matter how bad North Carolina is. You don't go to Chapel Hill and win by 25. You don't play Villanova early in the year and win by 25, which is exactly what they did uh, if you're not good. So credit to Ohio State, but I do think the story is North Carolina. I do think they're struggling, and I don't know how it gets better. Let's transition back to Tuesday. I thought Tuesday was a really interesting night to be a consumer of college basketball, and I'll tell you why. There were two massive games, right? Louisville and Michigan at the KFC Yum Center, Duke and Michigan State at the Breslin Center in East Lansing. And it was really interesting to me because when Louisville and North Car- or when Louisville and Michigan played early in the night, Louisville goes on to win... They win convincingly. It's never really in doubt. And I see all these like national college basketball writers, even guys that I like, saying like, oh, that was a statement win for Louisville. What a great, incredible, they prove they're the number one team in the country. Like, really? Did y'all watch like the same game that I watched? Because I thought Louisville played kind of like a, like a B minus C plus game. Now, Louisville had the best player on the court, Jordan Nwora. Played like an All-American, finished with 22 points and 12 rebounds. But, like, Louisville, like, they played well, but I just thought it was a deal where they caught Michigan on the right night. I don't think Michigan is overrated. I'm not selling my Michigan stock, but they played three games in three days in the Bahamas, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They then had to fly home Friday night, probably didn't land until early Saturday. Then they had to get on a plane back on Monday and go to Louisville. I thought they were a little flat. I'm not selling my Michigan stock. But, like, this idea that Louisville played this, like, trans... Like, I saw four or five people, like, that was a statement victory. No, it wasn't. They played a B-minus game, and it just so happened that Michigan played a D-minus game. And that's all I really have to say about it, because I don't think there were any major takeaways to take away for either team other than that Jordan Awara played like an All-American. That dude's going to be fun to watch this year, and that's the dude that makes Louisville go. So, no. Don't tell me that Louisville played a statement. They had a statement win. No. But you know who did have a statement win? How about Duke? And I know, like I said, I know it's paining all of you to hear me say nice things about Duke. 
But, like, I do think it is worth discussing the fact that, like, they're a really good team. And it was really funny. Final score, by the way, was 87-75, 13-point win for Duke at Michigan State. But if you watch the game, it wasn't that close. Duke dominated that thing from opening tip in every way. They punked Michigan State. Michigan State, and it was talked about on the broadcast repeatedly, and the guys were right, Jay Billis and Dan Schulman, they were right, is from beginning to end... Duke was just tougher, meaner, more physical, and that's something you can never say about a Michigan State team, but that's exactly what we saw on Tuesday night in East Lansing. And so starting with Duke, it was really kind of funny because when I put out my top 25 on Monday, I really didn't drop Duke all that much. I had a couple people, and it was nothing personal. Nobody was like mean about it or aggressive or attacking, but they're like, dude, how can you have Duke, why didn't you drop Duke more? And my answer was very simple. I said, look, I know they lost to Stephen F. Austin. It was funny. We all got our jokes off. The dude, Nathan, whatever his name was, got like $100,000 for charity for his family. That's awesome. That's great. But they had a bad night. I don't believe they're a bad team. Let's not forget, Duke beat Kansas on opening night, and Kansas just went to Maui and ran stuff in Maui. Oh, by the way, Uh, Let's also not forget that Duke beat Georgetown before Georgetown completely self-imploded, and I would love to talk about Georgetown, but I think we're just not going to have enough time on today's show. Maybe I'll get to that in the future, but Duke's a real team, and they showed that, and and what I would say is this, is they got a nice little inside-outside game going with Trey Jones and Vernon Carey, and I tweeted this on Tuesday night during the game. But I, I, listen, guys, one thing about me, what do you guys like about me? I tell it like it is. I admit when, I wrong, when I'm wrong. I own when I screw up. And I screwed up on Vernon Carey. I will tell you right now, I don't think that I have ever been more wrong on a prospect than I was on Vernon Carey because this was a guy that I, listen, I told you guys all preseason. I was like, I don't really like this guy. He was kind of fat and he was kind of slow when I saw him in high school. And by the way, it wasn't just me. I talked to a high major assistant coach in the offseason. We talked specifically about Vernon Carey. He goes, dude, I can't lie. I never saw it. Like, I get that, you know, he's big and he's strong, but, like, I never saw it. This guy, this high major assistant coach, I won't name the school, I won't name the conference, nothing, but he had no personal agenda against the kid. He goes, I think he's the most overrated kid I've ever seen. I don't see it. And I was in that camp on Vernon Carey. Well, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. A.T. whiffed on Vernon Carey because this dude has been dominant. And look, I don't know how he translates into an NBA player. And the one thing about this podcast, and kind of if you follow me, you know, is like I don't do the whole like I only talk about college basketball in the spectrum of the NBA and the future and how these guys are going to look at the next level. Um And I bring that up because I don't know how Vernon Carey at seven feet, probably 260 pounds is going to translate at the NBA level. But at the college level, this dude is dominating. 19 points, almost 10 boards, over two blocks per game. And Michigan State had no answer for him. Duke just dumped the ball down low. He would just get, get, in the, get in the lane, get a layup, get fouled. I mean, this kid must have had seven three-point plays. It was unbelievable. 26 points for Vernon Carey. Um, and Duke's rolling, man. And, and that kid, Vernon Carey's for real. Trey Jones is playing well. Duke played, by the way, without one of their best players, Cassius Stanley. And so I look at Duke and I say, like, 
I know we all want to hate Duke, and like I get it, but neutral court win against Kansas, road win against Michigan State, neutral court win against Georgetown. They're a pretty good basketball team right now. You know who isn't a good basketball team right now, though, is the Michigan State Spartans. And it's unbelievable because this was a team, consensus number one. It was really interesting as I was watching that game. I remember back to the interview that I had with Rob Douster before the Champions Classic where I basically asked him, I said, like, Rob, is it possible that, like, we're all a little too into Michigan State right now? Because if you remember, they had a, an exhibition against Gonzaga that they lost. Uh, Josh Langford was out with injury. Uh, Thomas Kithier, the kid that uh, the big guy uh, broke his nose uh, during the preseason. And there was all these injuries. I, and I remember saying to Rob, I was like, are we kind of overvaluing this team? And I think he and I both kind of agreed like, yeah, probably. But who else are you going to put at number one? And so we put him there. And now we're literally a month into the season. I'm recording here on December 4th. And Michigan State is five and three. And really, they should be 4-4 four and four because they should have lost at Seton Hall. They got this unbelievable game from this freshman Malik Hall. Otherwise, they wouldn't have beaten Seton Hall. And we'd be talking about them as 4-4 four and four right now as the preseason number one team. And it's one of those deals where, listen, I do think it will get better eventually for Michigan State. I think there's a lot going on maybe behind the scenes that we don't realize. I think some of it is, you know, really frankly unfortunate. I don't think Cassius Winston is playing at 100% of his capabilities, and frankly, it's hard to blame him because, as we all know, he had a death in the family. Uh, his brother passed away just a couple weeks ago, and I'm sure he's playing with a heavy heart. But you look at Michigan State, and I think Winston's not playing totally locked in. Um, and you look everywhere else, and like I'll tell you this right now. There's, there's two things that stand out to me. The first is like I just don't really like the pieces on this team. I was watching them against Duke, and this is what I realized, and I think it was the same against Kentucky, and I think it was the same against Seton Hall, and I think it was the same in Maui, is they can basically only do two things. They, Cassius Winston can hit a three, or they can get points at the rim. In other words, Cassius Winston off a of pick and roll, drives, and I do like their big guys down low, Xavier Tillman, Marcus Bingham, Gabe Brown, but what I don't like, they basically get no scoring from any of their wing players. And it sounds crazy, but we spent so much time talking about Cassius Winston coming back and Xavier Tillman coming back this year. They had a kid last year on the team named Kenny Goins. Kenny Goins was a former walk-on that played the power forward position, but he was kind of sort of one of these new age stretch fours. He was one of these guys that could step out and hit a three. He was one of these guys that could bang down low. He could kind of do everything. And that's the one thing that Michigan State doesn't have right now. They don't get any scoring on the wing. It's unbelievable. Every basket is at the rim. And when everything has to be a contested two, that makes things really, really, really hard on your offense. And so I do think that they're missing Josh Langford right now. I do think, remember, they had a kid, Joey Hauser, that they were trying to get eligible transfer from Marquette. And th that was when Tom Izzo threw a fit. I think Izzo knew that he needs this guy. And then I'll also say this. The kid Aaron Henry isn't playing very well. And that was kind of a stunner uh, on, on Tuesday night is that this was a kid that I, a lot of people believe that Aaron Henry is the best NBA draft prospect on Michigan State's roster. This kid played 22 minutes and had two points. 
on Tuesday night against Duke. Now, I've talked to some people at Michigan State, talked to people behind the scenes. They're telling me, I think there's a little bit going on with Aaron Henry right now where I think he came into the season believing he was a quote-unquote two-and-done. He would average you know, 17 a game and go pro after this year. And I think he's worried a little bit too much from everything that I've heard about maybe about his NBA draft stock and not enough about what's going on with Michigan State this year. I think that he'll work through it. But I'm telling you right now, they need him to step up and they need somebody else. And I don't know if it's going to be Josh Langford if he ever gets healthy. I don't know if it'll be the kid Malik Hall who played really well against Seton Hall. But I just noticed they don't shoot the three-point ball well. Every basket they get is at the rim. By the way, they went four for 16 from three against Duke. Um, and it's just really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Even when you have a great point guard and even when you have great big guys down low, it's really hard when you have to get everything at the rim. So I think they need some kind of perimeter presence. They need some kind of wing scoring, whether it comes from Aaron Henry, whether Josh Langford gets healthy, whatever. I do think this is fixable. Where North Carolina, like I think North Carolina is screwed. I think North Carolina is stuck with who North Carolina has, and I think it's going to be a long season. I think Michigan State can turn around. But I do think they kind of got to circle the wagons and kind of figure out, like, who do we want to be, man? Like, all of us came back. Some of us are seniors. Like, do we want to be great or do we want to be forgettable? I think it's going to be fascinating. All right, we're going to wrap on the ACC Big Ten Challenge. I already talked about Louisville. I really don't feel like there's anything else to get into with Louisville. Listen, I just think they – and I truly believe this. This is an insult to Chris Mack, who, by the way, shout out to Chris Mack – undefeated since he appeared on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. No big deal. Not saying that I'm solely responsible for Louisville's hot start, but I can't say that I'm not either. You know what I mean? But don't think there's a ton to take away from Louisville. But you know the team that I do think there's something to take away from? The Virginia Cavaliers. Don't know if you saw this, guys. Virginia lost in the ACC Big Ten Challenge to Purdue 69-40. to 40. 69 to 40 and I would add this isn't even a particularly good Purdue team Purdue was five four and three coming into this game but the bottom line with Virginia is this and it's really funny right Longtime listeners of the show will remember two years ago when this show was first getting started I was the most critical Tony Bennett guy going and they got it rolling last year, and I forgave them, and then we became best friends, and then I wanted to, uh, you know, move to Charlottesville and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, live on campus, li- you know, whatever. But I remember, and I will never forget this, because I talked about it on this show with Nick Coffey during the 2018 NCAA tournament, when Virginia lost to UMBC. The day after that game, I got a call from a coach a former coach, she's not really in basketball anymore, but this is a guy that has coached national championship caliber teams. And what he said to me was, he said, Aaron, he goes, if they can't figure out their offense, they will never win big in the tournament. Now, to their credit, they were very good last year. The offense was much better with DeAndre Hunter and Ty Jerome and um, Kyle Guy, but This coach was adamant. He said, look, Aaron, here's the bottom line. Here's what you need to know. This is a guy that's won national championships at the college level. And he said, look, you get into that NCAA tournament, six single elimination games you have to win. And in those six games, not everything is going to go right for you. 
Sometimes some team's going to get hot. Sometimes you're going to have a guy twist an ankle. Sometimes you're going to have a team get in foul trouble. You got to win high scoring. You got to win low scoring. You got to win playing fast. You got to win playing slow. And Virginia can only win one way. That's why it was so awesome to watch last year is they completely flipped how they were doing things. They completely flipped who they were and in the process won the national championship. Here is my fear though. All that progress that they made last year, they're right back where they started because this is a team that cannot score right now and can only win playing one way. And they can only win playing when the score is in the 50s or the 40s. I saw an incredible stat. So Virginia was 7-0 and coming into this game. Of their eight games now, including on Wednesday night against Purdue in a loss, of their eight games, in four of them, they've scored less than 50 points. Now, it's great that you play all this defense, but at some point, you're going to have to be able to score offensively. And Virginia is right back where they were two years ago. They can only win playing one way. If the other team gets hot from three, or if the other team, somebody gets in foul trouble, if they score 55 points, Virginia's in trouble. Virginia's in real trouble. So listen, this is a team because I think the ACC is a little down this year. I think it's Louisville and Duke, and then there's a big drop. I think Virginia's going to win a lot of games. I do think they can get a two seed, a three seed. And listen, all the national media loves Tony Bennett. All the national media is going to tell you, oh, they're a contender and they can do... No, they can't. I'm just telling you right now. I'm telling you on December 4th, you're listening on December 5th, Virginia cannot win a national championship playing the way that they are. Don't buy the hype. They, they're one-dimensional. They can only win playing one way, and they will eventually cost them. It could In the regular season, it might not matter. They could go 28-6 and six in the regular season. They will not win in March if they cannot play this way. Finally, last thing, because I'm running long. Jacob Hester's coming up. I do want to talk about... <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, guys. I do want to talk about the DePaul Blue Demons. DePaul! I think it's the first time that we've ever talked about DePaul on this show, but DePaul just went, they weren't on the road, I was going to say they went on the road, but they were at home against Texas Tech. Don't know if you remember, Texas Tech played in the Final Four last year. Don't know if you remember, Texas Tech played in the Elite Eight the year before. DePaul just beat that team at home in overtime in one of the most exciting games of the season. DePaul is now 9-0, and I am just telling you, DePaul is going to make the NCAA tournament, people. DePaul is going to make... Listen to their, their resume right now. They're 9-0. They already have four wins over power conference teams. They won at Iowa. They won at BC. They won at Minnesota. And they just beat Texas Tech at home. Barring something catastrophic, they are going to make the NCAA tournament. And it's just such a cool story, right? This is what's great about college basketball. This program has been down forever. I give credit to the coaching staff, Dave Lato, former UConn assistant, Hate to brag, but it's the truth. UConn assistant Dave Lato is a guy that has been there now for the second time. He was there early in the early 2000s, left, came back, and the, the administration was patient with him. They really struggled, and what they have done better than maybe anybody, they have hit the transfer market hard. Their best player is Charlie Moore, who couldn't even play at Kansas last year. He's now averaging 17 a game for them and almost seven assists. They got another kid named Jalen Coleman-Hands, who started his career at Illinois, who's a monster, hit so many big shots against Texas Tech. Uh, they got another kid 
that uh, was originally at Arkansas. They got a fourth-year junior named Paul Reed, and they do have a couple big-time freshmen. But you watch them. That team is fearless. They outplayed Texas Tech down the stretch. They were hustling for loose balls. It was just an awesome, 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 awesome sight to see. Uh, it has been forever. I mean, guys, DePaul was at one point one of the great programs in college basketball. It was before I was born. We got a lot of college kids who listen to the show. It was definitely before you were born. But this looks like a team that will make the NCAA tournament. And I'll tell you this, in a down Big East where Providence is way worse than we were expecting, where Georgetown, I got to be honest, they're in real trouble right now, where I'm just going through the list in my head. Uh, you know, I don't think Marquette's as good as we thought they were. I don't think Xavier is as good as they thought they were. I do like Villanova. I like Seton Hall, but they got to close out games. But I'm telling you, man, DePaul might be one of the two or three best teams in the Big East, and they are going to go to the end. If they don't completely collapse or have bad injuries or something like that, they are an NCAA tournament team. What a way to wrap. All right, that is enough on the college hoop stuff. This was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Guys, you know, I, I know most of you guys are college hoops diehards. I'm telling you right now, we are going to transition full speed ahead into college hoops as college football, uh, as we transition out of college football. We're going to get the four-team playoff here on Sunday. Then we're probably going to spend most of December talking college, football, college basketball. So get ready. Buckle in. We got some coaches lined up. It's going to be great. That is all for this college basketball segment. I will tell you, up next, I already mentioned it, Jacob Hester, a former player at LSU. He now hosts SiriusXM. He now hosts Radio in Baton Rouge. He gives incredible insight into the SEC championship game. And then on the back end, I'll talk a little Clay Helton. I will talk a little bit of the conference championship games. But before I go, before I throw to Jacob Hester, just a reminder, and I'll remind you at the end of the show too, but please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, if you have an Android, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, wherever you listen to shows. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. My intern, Zach, has been killing it. A lot of great stuff on the, the podcast page. And also, if you're going to be in Vegas, Get in touch, figure out a way, because we are going to blow things up in Vegas. All right, that's all for today. I'll be back Sunday to recap the conference championship games. But now, here is my guy, Jacob Hester, to talk about the SEC championship game. All right, and joining me on the phone now, here to preview the SEC championship game, Good friend of mine, host of Hanging with Hester every day in Baton Rouge, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 Central. Also host on Sirius XM, former LSU Tiger, my man, Jacob Hester. What is going on? How are you, man? Doing good. Getting ready for a busy schedule. Obviously, LSU's had a heck of a run here. Going to Atlanta to watch the SEC championship game. And then heading to New York uh, to cover... Joe Burrow winning the Heisman Trophy. There you go. Okay, so listen, and that's where I wanted to start. What is the scene in Baton Rouge right now? Are there is there just a Mardi Gras parade going up and down the street twenty four hours or what, man? Because I have to assume it's an exciting week in Baton Rouge. Well, it's kind of funny. I mean, that's what you would assume because look, I mean, LSU's a blue blood program, but oh. they 
haven't been to an SEC championship game since 2011. And so you would think that people are going crazy. They'd be excited. And they're fired up for this team. And they've enjoyed watching this team and, you know, showed up last week and all those things. But with Coach Joe and his mentality and for the players, like they haven't celebrated anything, mm-hmm. right? They went two rivalry games, one at Ole Miss. There's a trophy they play for. No player goes and gets the trophy. They play for the boot against Arkansas. They win that game. Nobody goes and runs to get the boot. And that's no disrespect to those trophies, but this team has bigger goals. They win the SEC West. There's no T-shirts. There's no hats. They don't even talk about it, to be honest with you. It's just about, okay, we got to get to Atlanta, and we got to take care of business. Because to win a national championship, obviously, you want to win a championship in the SEC first. And it's really just been the mentality, and the fans have picked up on that. So it sounds almost like a spoiled mentality. But, again, it's been a while since LSU's been in this position. But it's just about you know trying to get to that end goal. That's really interesting. And I was going to actually ask you this later on, but I'll, I'll just ask you right now. Um, listen, so much gets talked about with the offense with LSU and, and all the changes there. But it feels like to me as an outsider that just watches 12 hours of college football every Saturday that there is kind of a, I don't know, just a different approach under Coach O. And what I was just going to ask you in general, what is different about Coach O, no disrespect to Les Miles or whatever, but it just feels like there's a different kind of confidence or aura or air to this program that, like you said, really hasn't been there in maybe a decade or so. And I know it's more than the offense. The offense is what gets all the headlines, but it just feels different. What is Coach O doing differently than other guys have done in the past for them to kind of reach this level of success? I think Coach O has done a fantastic job of hiring really good people around him. He does a great job of managing the program as well. And I also think in an ego-driven profession, he takes his ego out of it. He admits when he makes mistakes, and not a lot of coaches will do that. You know that, covering football and basketball collegially. Those guys don't usually admit when they make a mistake. And you look at a move like he brings Matt Canada in to be his offensive coordinator, and Matt Canada scored a lot of points everywhere he'd really been, but it didn't work out at LSU. And we could sit here and talk about the reasons why it didn't work out, but it didn't work out. A lot of head coaches would have stayed with Matt Canada as the coordinator a couple more seasons to try to prove their point, right, to try to prove people wrong. Coach O says, no, I don't like this direction. I'm going to go hire Steve Insminger as my offensive coordinator. I know that we work well together. We were working well together when uh, Steve was the interim OC and I was the interim head coach. And credit to him. And every decision like that, Coach O's been transparent. And he said, you know, hey, this needs to change. We need to do this. I feel like it's going to help our program. And all the moves have worked to not only make Steve Insminger the OC, but to make Joe Brady the passing game coordinator, to make sure no team comes and steals Dave Aranda. I mean, he understands that he surrounds himself with the best. It allows him to kind of manage everything else and put everything else into place, and he's done a fantastic job of doing that because you knew he was going to be a recruiter. You knew he was going to bring energy to the team. He continues to do that each and every day. I'm fortunate enough to go out there and watch practices. You can't tell the difference between a practice getting ready for Utah State and getting ready for Georgia, and that's a credit mm-hmm. to Coach O. Yeah, I was going to ask. that. That's another thing that kind of jumps out to me, Jake, is the the way that he's really been transparent about building his staff and bringing in smart people. And I think even back to when he was interviewing to become the head coach, you know, the rumor was 
that if Lane Kiffin hadn't gotten the Florida Atlantic job, that Lane Kiffin was going to come in and run the offense, come from Alabama, the SEC West rival. I guess I would just ask you in like the bigger picture of football, and you've been around this sport forever. For people don't know you played in the NFL for a number of years. You played at LSU. You won a national championship. Like how how I don't know if rare it is, but but it just feels different in the sense that Coach O is basically sitting there saying, like you said, man, I don't know everything. Man, I'm going to bring other smart people around me. I'm not going to be threatened by them because it's what's good for the program. In some cases, I might even take less money to bring in the best possible guy. I just find kind of that attitude so refreshing. Yeah, look, because like he had his time at Ole Miss, and he tells you like that's not the way that I wanted to be a head coach, and he admits that that did not go the way his vision initially started there, right? And you know sometimes you got to go through that to get to the point where you ha- have success, and he's there now, and he he realizes you know continuing to bring in people that fit the personality of LSU football as well, to bring in a Bill Bush to be your safeties coach, to bring in so many people from the outside, James Craig from the NFL to be your offensive line coach. He's bringing people around him that he knows is best for LSU. And, uh, you know, again, him not hiding from the failures that he's had in his career, too, I think is so important because you're learning from each and every day. Look, we've all had failures, no matter what we're doing. I mean, you can be in the TV and the radio business for however long. You go back and you look at some of your old work, and say, man, that's that's not who I wanted to be. That's not who I thought I was. Sure. And you grow from it, you get better. That's in each and every profession, right? And so I think he's done a fantastic job of doing that because how many head coaches have we seen that have failed in one spot, they get that second opportunity. They promise you it's going to be different. They promise you it's going to change. And you turn on the tape, and it's the same team in different colors. Sure. And that's what Coach O did a fantastic job of. And it didn't start when he got to LSU. It really started when he became the interim head coach at USC. Mm-hmm. I mean, those players absolutely loved him. He had a lot of success as an interim coach at USC. And thank goodness they didn't make him the full-time coach. And LSU was able to get him on their staff. And you look at the relationships that he built while he was at USC. And my high school quarterback, John David Booty, played for him when when Coach O was an assistant at USC. And I remember when Coach O got the job here, just having a conversation with John David about how much Coach O meant to him. And you're talking about a quarterback and a D-line coach. I mean, they don't ever really cross paths, but he knew how special Coach O was and given the opportunity to succeed, he was going to do it. That's really funny. Yeah, I, I mean, you know this. I live in L.A., and every time Coach O comes up, it is in the context of USC had this guy. He was actually, for people who don't remember, pretty successful. The problem was that he lost the final game of the season to UCLA. They go out and hire Steve Sarkeesian, and the rest is history. But USC fans still very much remember that. Uh, One last question about kind of the season as a whole. We'll get to Saturday's game. I know you said it's business as usual. We're not there. There is no celebration. It's on to the next game. It's Bill Belichick. We're on to Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. But as someone who covers it, as somebody who's in communication with the fans every day via your show, how about just the season as a whole? Because you know sometimes we get so caught up on the end result. Do they win the national championship? Do they not? That you forget the kind of the steps and the process and everything in between. And I just think about that because. I know that some of the most memorable seasons for me as a fan aren't always the ones that you win the national championship in, um, and you don't always get that end result, but during the season, it's just really fun to follow a specific group of guys, things like that. I would have to imagine that's the way it is at LSU right now. 
Yeah, this season's kind of been like utopia, right? Yeah. I mean, you finally get a quarterback after going, it seems like a decade, searching for that guy that could be a true number one, he could be your leader, and you'd have a couple of seasons where he was that because Joe at the end of last year was playing at a very high level. And so you came into the season feeling really good about your quarterback. You also, you, look, call it like it is, you heard rumors that the offense was going to change for a decade as well. It finally changes, and not does it change. You're setting every record, it seems like, in the SEC as far as passing statistics that have stood for a long time. I mean, Joe Burrow just beat Tim Couch's record for yards in a season. He tied Drew Locke's record for touchdowns in a season. I would assume he'll break that in the SEC championship game. And you're talking Clyde Edwards-Elair's been dynamic. And Jamal Chase is probably going to win the Blitnikoff. And so everything that LSU fans were asking for for a long time kind of came into this season. All right, you ended last season on a high, beating a Central Florida football team that hadn't lost in two years. You win a Fiesta Bowl. All the preseason talk was, man, this LSU team can be special. Now they've got a tough schedule. They've got to go on the road to Texas. They've got to play Auburn, Florida, Alabama. We know that. And they've gone through that undefeated and with a chance now to win the SEC title against a very good Georgia football team. It's really just been the ultimate situation for every fan. Even, look, you know this. When you're covering uh, a local team, there's two ways it can go for you to have, you know, your ratings be at an all-time <laughs> high, right? Sure. Either really successful or you're really, really bad. That's really the only, only in between. And so I'll take the successful over the bad any day. Fantastic. Let's transition really quick to Saturday. Um, you know, we all know kind of George's profile, their makeup. They play great kind of old-school SEC defense. The The offense isn't nearly as far along. Uh, you know, I probably feel differently about this game than you do. I actually, I, I feel very confident that LSU is going to win. I know you're probably not willing to say that because, you know, like you don't want to, whatever, you're, you you do not want to put any jinx or anything on LSU, but, but like realistically, how do you see Georgia? We respect what they've done on the defensive side of the ball. They aren't a complete team. How do you think LSU matches up and just thoughts on in general on the game? Well, look, I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, you don't want to go out there and start throwing too many predictions out. But not only did I play for LSU, but I covered the SEC on Sirius XM. So, uh, you know, I had to take a look at this game and take the purple and gold glasses off and come to, you know, without LSU being on my mind. And with that being said, I still like LSU in this contest. Now, I'm going to throw out some numbers. And this Please. is no disrespect to the Georgia defense because I truly do think they're one of the better defenses we've seen. I mean, they can really set the edge, and they've got a bunch of guys out there busting their ass to play as good a football as you're on the defensive side. But the best offense they've played this year is Arkansas State, wow. and they ranked 44th in the country. When you start to break down some of the numbers, and you know, like they played a backup quarterback against Tennessee, a third stringer in South Carolina, a backup in Kentucky, a backup against Florida, a backup against Mizzou, so they've had some some different opportunities to be able to expose some of those backup quarterbacks. When you kind of put all the offenses together, taking out Murray State, who's in the FCS, and they rank 90th in the FCS in total offense, when you average it out, total offense, it's 80th in the country. Hmm. And again, I know that Georgia does have some absolute guys on defense, but this is going to be the best quarterback, the best running back, the best receiver maybe the best two receivers they've played all year long, in my opinion. And so we'll see what what wins out, right? Because when you go to the other sideline and you average out LSU's defenses, which include Florida, 
eighth total defense, Auburn 16, Alabama 18. It comes to 59th in the country. So a little bit better there. We'll see which one wins out. For me, it's, you know, if you're Georgia, who do you try to stop? Is it Jamar Chase? Is it Justin Jefferson? Is it Clyde Everett-Gilead? Because their run defense has been elite. Like they're, they're only giving up a little over 70 yards per game on the ground. They've only given up one rushing touchdown this entire season, and that was to a quarterback. So regardless of who you play, those stats stand out to me. So what kind of game can Clyde Edwards-Elair have? And then when you start talking about the Georgia offense, for some reason Jake Fromm is, has really struggled the last four games. He's been under 48% the last four games, and that's not who we know Jake Fromm to be. Jake Fromm is a guy that's always completed passes at a high clip. He hasn't done that in the last four games, and really this year it seems like he's kind of had some handcuffs on. Now, DeAndre Swift's a stud at running back, but as far as Jake Fromm connecting with his receivers, it's been a little bit of a struggle. And Cager, the second leading receiver on this team, is going to be out for the game. Mm-hmm. You've got Pickens, who's going to be suspended for the first half after he's going to fight against Georgia Tech. You know, where is Georgia going to get that offense? Because strength on strength is LSU's O versus Georgia's D. And then Georgia's O versus LSU's D is going to be a matchup that we're not talking about because of the other one, but it's probably the most important one to see which one went down. Georgia's handcuffed a little bit. So, very intrigued to see what they do and who they try to feature because you've got to imagine LSU's going to stack the box, put an extra defender to stop DeAndre Swift. So real quick, and uh, two more questions I'll let you go. The first one is, um, and again, you're, you're a guy, like one thing I love about talking you know, football, basketball, whatever with you, is you're level-headed because you played at LSU, because you cover LSU. Like you said, you cover the SEC as a whole, and you're not the type of person that's going to you know, ride or die with the team that you cover, regardless of if you don't actually believe what you're saying. So what I was going to ask was, is this one of those games where, again, if you take off those purple and gold glasses, do you feel like LSU has to do anything kind of extraordinary to win this game? Or if they simply execute and do the things that they've been doing for the last 12 weeks, do you feel pretty confident that they're going to win? Yeah, I think they just have to stay on schedule, sure. Aaron. I think offensively, you know, you haven't turned the ball over. You have done a nice job, and Joe Burrow's really done a nice job of you know, avoiding pressure, and he's been so good in the pocket. Now, if I'm Georgia and I want to try to find a way to stay in this football game, I get after Joe Burrow, I get him on the ground, I make him throw us a pass or two, and we create turnovers, and offensively we convert on third downs like we did against the Florida Gators We keep the ball on the ground. Time of possession is in our favor. I mean, there's a blueprint for Georgia to go out there and win this game, but there's been a lot of blueprints. There's been 12 of them to try to beat LSU this year, and it hasn't happened, so... Look, uh, uh, again, you know, just looking at this from from an SEC perspective, LSU's got a lot of advantages in this game. Georgia has a couple of advantages. Playing an hour from your campus, I think, is an advantage. Uh, you know, having the defensive stats you have, obviously, against the run. When LSU likes to run the football, that's an advantage. But when you look at LSU and what they can do throwing the football, what's Georgia going to do defensively? Because we saw Auburn do something they'd never done before. They ran a 3-1-7 defense with three D linemen, mm-hmm. one linebacker, and seven deep to try to wow. stop the LSU passing attack. And it opened up big lanes for Clyde Edward Delaire. So I'm very intrigued, right? Because Kirby Smart, he's a prideful guy. I know Kirby. He was a DB coach when I was at LSU. He likes to roll his defense out there. Will he have something up his sleeve different just for this LSU defense or offense? Or is he just going to say, you know what, we're a better defense, you're not going to beat us, we're going to line up and we're going to smack you in the mouth. That's something to watch early in the contest. 
Very good. Last question, I'll let you go, Jake. Um, what would, not only winning this game, but but making the playoff, and listen, you still, even if you win this game, there's two more games left and all that stuff, but what would it mean for LSU to not only, to, to win the SEC, to get to the playoff, et cetera, because one, Alabama, and the last time you joined me, we talked a lot about the Alabama angle of this, Nick Saban being former LSU head coach. But also, like, what would it mean for the program as a whole? Like, we all saw that video of Ed Orgeron uh, in the postgame in Alabama, and I forget the exact quote, you know, but uh, we're going to beat him on the field, we're going to beat him in recruiting, roll tide, F you, blah, blah, blah. Like, what is it? what would it mean to, to make it to the playoff, maybe, you know, in a perfect world, win a national championship. But but I imagine that Coach O uh, going forward is going to be selling to high school recruits that this is just the beginning, this isn't the end. I mean, look, a win would go a very long way. And, yeah, the end goal is to win a national championship. But anybody that's ever played in the SEC will tell you right under that is winning an SEC championship. And, again, as we started this interview, something they haven't done since 2011. And if you're able to go into homes and say, you know what, we're the best in the best conference in the SEC, I mean, that can go a long way. And, obviously, LSU, if you look at their footprint, They've gone all over the map. California, they got some California kids. Yeah, they've gone California, they've gone D.C., they've gone Texas, kind of everywhere. And that allows you, when you win SEC championships, that allows you to go to places maybe you couldn't open those doors before. So it went a long way for this LSU program. Jacob Hester, uh, he is the host of Hanging with Hester 1-3 to Central Time in Baton Rouge, hosts on Sirius XM. Uh, he is, he's my guy, man, dude. I, it's probably your busiest week of the year. I sincerely appreciate you doing this. You got other calls coming in, dude. Thank you so much for the time. Of course, man. You're my guy. Anytime you need me, let me know. All right. So a big thank you to my main man, Jacob Hester. Jacob is unbelievable. I'll tell you this. If you don't, if you're not familiar with Jacob, Jacob is quite literally a living legend in the state of Louisiana, helping LSU to the 2007 National Championship. But he's a legend to me because this is unquestionably uh, the busiest week of his year, maybe the busiest week of his media career as he gets set to, of course, as he said, go to Atlanta for the SEC Championship game, go to New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony. And it says a lot about the kind of guy that he is, that he made some time for me. So I, I appreciate Jacob. I appreciate everything that he does for this show. This is the second time in a few months that he's been on. He's kind of my LSU SEC resource kind of guy. And if you did enjoy him, do me a favor, follow him on Twitter, at JacobHester18. Um, you know, he's not a huge Twitter guy, but he's a great guy. And so I do want to quickly thank Jacob Hester for joining the show. I do want to get into the rest of the college football weekend. And we just spent a bunch of time talking the SEC championship game. I want to get to the other SC, uh, the other title games this weekend. But before I do, I want to get to some late-breaking news late Wednesday afternoon when we found out that USC is going to bring back Clay Helton as head coach. And this is something that we've kind of periodically talked about throughout this uh, on this show, really throughout the last six months. I mean, even dating back to the spring, I remember the story where Reggie Bush said that he was going to be recruiting Urban Meyer when they were working together on Fox. And it seemed like an inevitability that Clay Helton would not be back after this year, that Urban Meyer would be in. And now it's completely swung 180 the other way, or 360 the other way, really, with Urban Meyer. It looks like he's going to be in the media here for a while. And Clay Helton, USC, officially announced that they will bring him back for the 2020 season. 
And it's one of those deals where, I'll be honest, I actually see both sides to the argument. And so for the people who don't want Clay Helton back, it's very simple. Clay Helton went 8-4 and four this year, and while 8-4 and four gets the job done at a lot of places, it's kind of like what Nick Coffey and I talked about with Jim Harbaugh the other day, 8-4 and four doesn't get the job done at USC. USC is a program that when they are uh, operating at the highest level, they should be competing for national championships. They should be compete, competing for college football playoff bursts. And so I do understand the frustration of a USC fan today that's like, dude, I get it. We went 8-4. and four. Big deal. We're not Oregon State. We're not um, Vanderbilt. We're not Washington. We're not Washington State. We're not Arizona. We don't celebrate eight-win seasons the same way that Kentucky basketball and North Carolina basketball don't celebrate going to the Sweet 16. We have higher standards. We expect bigger things. And so that is mostly the argument from USC fans within LA. I'm telling you, I live in LA. There are not very many people that are happy with this move. But I would also use the counter, which is something that I have kind of talked about on this show probably over the last two or three weeks, which is I know you want better than Clay Helton, but I also think that this is a guy that is owed right around a $20 million buyout. And if you're not positive that you can get one of those A++ candidates, I think you keep him around for another year, one, because you just went eight and four, and two, because do you really want to pay $20 million to send him packing without the guarantee that you're going to get one of those guys that you want? And I will tell you this, USC season actually ended two Saturdays ago. They did not play this last Saturday, so it's been about 10 days since the USC season ended, and I feel pretty confident saying that USC did in fact kick the tires on, say, a James Franklin on some of the other big-name sitting head coaches. And I just think that between the $20 million they would have had to play, pay Clay Helton, between whatever buyout those guys are owed, and then between the $6, 7 $8 million it would take to get a James Franklin to USC, to get whoever that other guy would be, I just don't think they were confident that they could get that guy. I would also add this. I have been told here in Los Angeles that the thirst for Urban Meyer at USC is not nearly as high as it's been uh, reported in the media. For people who don't know, USC has a new athletic director, but also a new school president. The school president is a female. Her name is Carol Holt. I, I, I don't, Carol Holt, excuse me. I don't know a ton about her, but everything that I've heard is this. One, She's an academic. She's not a sports person. She's not a person that's going to come in and shake things up and winning a national championship in football is of the utmost importance to her. That's really important, but in the grand scheme of the university, her job isn't to focus on athletics. It's to focus on the university as a whole, but two, and this is the important part, I've been told that she's not all that keen on bringing in Urban Meyer considering how he left Ohio State, considering that he left under a cloud of did he help cover up domestic violence. And that whole thing's been litigated, and you can read about it online, and I'm not going to get into what did Urban Meyer know, what didn't he know, what should he have done, what shouldn't he have done, but he had a guy on his staff that was accused of domestic violence, that there was police reports and all kinds of stuff that you can read about, and Urban Meyer kept that guy on staff. And some of it you know, has been proven to be maybe a little overblown and not 100% factually correct, but I don't believe that at this moment in time, a female president wanted her first major, major move as school president to be to bring Urban Meyer to campus. 
I would also add that this also comes in a climate where USC is actually paying out, and you can Google all this stuff. I'm not going to get into all of it because it's very sensitive material, but there was a doctor that committed some very egregious acts. People have taken, uh, you know, they've sued the school, and the school is currently paying out hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits to these victims of this doctor. And I don't think USC, on top of that, wanted to bring in a coach with a history with kind of sketchy, domestic violence-ish type accusations, and on top of that, pay $20 million on top of that to Clay Helton. And so when you add all that up, I think that all plays a factor into why Clay Helton remains the head coach at USC. I get why USC fans are mad, but I would also ask this. I think people might be asking the wrong question. They're saying, oh, we need this big, splashy, big name hire. Come save USC football. What if you're asking the wrong question? What if, and this is going to sound crazy, what if the next head coach, the next great USC head coach is actually already on the staff? It sounds preposterous, right? Like you're like, AT, what are you talking about that makes absolutely no steps, that, that makes absolutely no sense? In the process, we kind of also have to redefine what a good coach in modern college football is because I was thinking about this as it pertains to USC. The reason that USC went 8-4 and four this year, it's not because Clay Helton turned into Pete Carroll overnight or Nick Saban overnight or even uh, Ed Orgeron or Kirby Smart overnight. It's because he got smart and he hired the best offensive coordinator he could, a guy named Graham Harrell. Graham Harrell brings the air raid offense to USC. All of a sudden, USC's throwing the ball all over the park. They're scoring a bunch of points. They win a bunch of games. They go 8-4. and four. They go 8-4 and four because of Graham Harrell, not because of Clay Helton. And so when I ask, is the best candidate for the job, not Urban Meyer, not James Franklin, but already on staff, let's think about the big picture of college football right now. Who is the last guy that went out and got hired from the outside that has been a home run, grand slam, whatever? Maybe Dan Mullen, maybe Kirby Smart. I don't know, but what I do know is this. Look at the playoff picture right now. Look at the four, five teams that are in the playoff mix. Think about it. You have Dabo Sweeney, who was the interim head coach at Clemson, got elevated to the head coach, and now has built them into a juggernaut. You had Ed Orgeron, who Jacob Hester just told you was the interim head coach, takes over, turns him into a juggernaut. Oh, by the way, Ryan Day was the offensive coordinator, brilliant play caller, elevated from within. And Lincoln Riley was elevated from within at Oklahoma. And so at the very least, you are going to have three coaches in this college football playoff. Ryan Day, who was promoted from within, and Ed Orgeron and Dabo Sweeney, who were both interim head coaches at one point. And so why do I bring it up? It's because... Maybe the smart move for USC, and I'm not even saying they're planning this, but just think about it like this. What if Graham Harrell could be the Lincoln Riley or Ryan Day of USC? What if, and again, I don't think USC planned it, but rather than spending $20 million to get rid of Clay Helton, rather than spending um, you know, another $10 million or whatever it's going to be to buy out James Franklin plus another $75 million guaranteed to get him, you bring Clay Helton back for one season. And if he starts out two and three, you cut bait right there. And one, 
and you're saving a little bit money on the buyout money, so it's a little bit more that you can give to the next coach. And then you give Graham Harrell six games or eight games or 10 games or whatever it is to see if he can be that Ryan Day or Lincoln Riley, to see if he has that head coaching gene, to see if he can be that brilliant offensive mind. You go spend a bunch of money on the defensive side of the ball like Oklahoma's done and Ohio State's done, and you let Graham Harrell run the offense as the head coach. It sounds crazy, but what if the next head coach, rather than you know guaranteeing 60 or 70 or $80 million to James Franklin, rather than bringing Urban Meyer, who's 55 years old, and it'll be 56 by the time he takes the head coaching job if it were a season from now. What if you just wait and you get Graham Harrell and you see if he's the guy? Now, there are obviously complicating factors. Graham Harrell could, in theory, get a head coaching job this year. He could get another offensive coordinator's job this year. Texas is, is said to be interested in, in interviewing him. I tend to think that it, it would be a weird move for him to go to Texas. I know he's originally from Texas, but look, I don't think Tom Herman's seat is significantly cooler than Clay Helton's. You've been at USC for a year. Uh, you're, you know the guys, you know the personnel, and you can just pick up where you left off next year because USC brings back practically everybody. So I just think this is kind of a fascinating subplot that nobody's talking about. But what if Graham Harrell can be USC's version of Ryan Day or Lincoln Riley and what if the best guy for this job is already on this staff? I just think that in this world, in this climate of college football, everybody's looking for the big-name head coach. Big-name head coaches generally don't leave good jobs. I mean, think about the Florida State situation with Mark Stoops. Mark Stoops is making like $5 million a year. His buyout's pretty substantial. So you're going to have to pay Mark Stoops more than $5 million a year, even at Florida State, which is a great job. It's like it's hard for Florida State to get guys to leave other good jobs because the money is so good. I think it's a fascinating thing to watch. I don't know if it'll work. I don't even think this was USC's plan when they decided to retain Clay Helton, but I do think it is something that is worth watching. All right, let's quickly wrap on the college football championship games. Spent a bunch of time talking SEC title game with Jacob Hester. I just want to give you my thoughts on the rest of the games. Um, obviously, I'm not going to get into all of them, but I will get into the top five, which is obviously Pac-12, Big 12, SEC, Big 10, and ACC. And so I'll start on Friday night, Pac-12, Utah, and Oregon. Utah is about a six-and-a-half-point favorite. I actually like Utah, and it's not just because Utah – was picked by your boy AT to make the college football playoff in August. Hate to brag, but I picked Utah. They're at number five right now. Naturally, they'll move up. Here's the bottom line with, with Utah and Oregon. Both teams are really good. Neither team has played a ton of other good teams. Utah actually hasn't beaten a ranked team yet this season. They only played one ranked team that was USC that was their only loss. But when you look at Utah, a couple things jump out to me about this game. First of all, Oregon, I told you a few weeks ago, Justin Herbert is the college Kirk Cousins. Justin Herbert is the guy that when you put him on that big stage, I don't trust him to come through when his team needs him. This was a guy that even in the Auburn game, a game that Oregon was in position to win, he threw for a touchdown on the opening drive and really didn't do much the rest of the game. It was the defense and it was the running game that kept them in. He obviously was really bad against Arizona State. And I think going up against the best defense that he has seen all year, I think it's going to be a struggle for him. Utah, number one ranked run defense in college football. They're going to put it on his shoulder. I don't believe that he can make enough plays. I also think USC will be motivated by, or excuse me, Utah will be motivated 
by what happened this week. And if you don't know what happened, it's basically since they got to number five, everybody is questioning them, right? Paul Feinbaum came out to, came out on Wednesday and said, nobody wants to see Utah in the playoff. You think they're not playing that on loop in the locker room? I think this was a situation where Utah could have come out tight. This is I don't even think it's arguable. This is the biggest game in program history. But now I think they're coming out with a chip on their shoulder, something to prove. I like Utah to win the Pac-12 championship, and I actually like them to eventually get the number four seed in the college football playoff. A lot of that will depend on what happens in the Big 12 championship game. Oklahoma, an eight-point favorite. I'll tell you this. I don't trust Oklahoma at all. First off, they played the same Baylor team three or four weeks ago. Baylor led 28-3 before completely falling apart. Oklahoma, to their credit, has won the games down the stretch that they've needed to to put themselves in position to play for the playoff. But if you look at them, I've been on this for weeks. They have struggled down the stretch. This was a team that lost to Kansas State. This is a team that gave up 20 points in the fourth quarter to Iowa State to almost lose that game. This is a team that fell down 28-3 to Baylor. This is a team that needed... Uh, some help from the refs to beat TCU. And so I look at this situation, I say they haven't played well in five or six weeks. And on top of the fact that they haven't played well, I would also say that keep in mind, Baylor, say what you want about him, has played some really, really, really good defense uh, really over the last couple months of the college football season while Oklahoma has been struggling. I should add, for people who don't know, Jalen Hurts has really struggled Uh, over the course of the second half of this year. Three interceptions in the last four games. Fumbled the ball seven times, including five turnovers. Baylor, on the other hand, the one thing you cannot deny about Baylor, they play real defense. They gave up six points last week to Kansas, 10 points the week before to Texas. Oklahoma was the week before that. Nine points in regulation to TCU the week before that. 14 to West Virginia. So I think this is close. I think this is low scoring. I would not be surprised if Baylor pulls a straight up upset, but I like them plus eight going into this game. Third game, SEC championship game, and I'm just going in chronological order of the games as they're being played on Saturday. SEC championship game, LSU Georgia. Listen, Jacob Hester just laid out the stats for you. Georgia faced five backup quarterbacks over the course of this season. Georgia, the best offense they faced was Arkansas State, who ranks 44th nationally. They have not seen a team anywhere close to as explosive as LSU. Because of it, I think LSU actually wins going away. They're a 7.5-point favorite. I think they win by 20 points. I really, truly do. I think LSU has been on a mission. They have one more step to make the playoff. They have one more step to reach their first goal in the preseason, which is to win the SEC. They do that. They do that convincingly. I like them. Fourth game is... Clemson and Virginia in the ACC championship game. The spread is 28. I actually like the under here. I'll give you a crazy stat about Clemson. Of the top six defenses in the ACC, Clemson has not played any of them, okay? So the number one ranked defense is Clemson, so they're obviously not playing themselves except in practice. The number two ranked defense is Pitt. The number three ranked defense is Miami. Four is Virginia. Five is Virginia Tech. Six is Duke. Clemson has not played any of those teams. This is the best defense they will have played since Texas A&M in week two. Keep in mind, that Texas A&M game was a 17-3 score until the final play of the game when Clemson scored a last-second touchdown. I like the under here. It's at 55 and a half. I think Clemson wins. I think they shut down Virginia. I don't think they score quite as much as they they have basically over the last three, four, five weeks. Finally, and I'm out of breath here because this has been fun, um, Ohio State and Wisconsin. 
Ohio State is a 16.5 point favorite at uh, my bookie, and I like Ohio State. I just think, look, the first game showed us everything we need to know when it comes to these two teams. And what we need to know is this, is Wisconsin did a better job shutting down Ohio State than anybody else, but Wisconsin isn't explosive enough on offense to capitalize on that. So if you went, I went back and looked at the box score of that game. Check this out. Wisconsin forced punts on the first three possessions of that game from Ohio State and four of the first six. The final four possessions, Ohio State scored a touchdown. What does that tell me? It means that the offense couldn't do anything, and eventually the defense got worn down. Nothing has changed on that offense. They're not mo- they're not any more explosive at Wisconsin than they were to begin the season. I think this is close through the first half, and then I think eventually Wisconsin is not able to keep up. Ohio State pulls away. I like Ohio State minus 16.5. So, I like Utah to cover on Friday night. Saturday, I like Baylor to cover and potentially win straight up. I like LSU convincingly in the SEC. I like Clemson convincingly, but low scoring in the ACC. I'm thinking something like 38-3 to or something like that. And finally, I do like Ohio State in the Big Ten, which would lead to a four-team playoff of LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Utah. All right. I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. We covered a lot of ground. And guys, I just want to thank you as always for your support of the show, for everything that you guys do to help spread the word, to help get people listening. The numbers have been steady throughout the fall. They're only staying steady as we go into basketball season. And obviously, once we get past this weekend, the transition will be to basketball full-time. So I want to thank you for listening. As always, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You do it on iTunes, Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Make sure you're subscribed there. Do it also on Spotify. You can do it on TuneIn Radio, Pod Paradise. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can check this one out. Rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars if you don't mind. Follow on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And finally... If you're going to be in Vegas, I will have details, but we are doing something. At the very least, come get some free food. I'm going to get the booze. We're going to have some drink specials. It's going to be fun. We're going to let loose. We're going to go crazy. If you love the show, if you want to meet, if you want to get good food, let me know so I can keep you in the loop. I should have details here in the next week or so. But again, you can find me at Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. You can reach me by Twitter. Uh, Aaron underscore Torres. You can hit me on Instagram DM, wherever you want to reach out. Just let me know and we will rock and roll and have fun. That is all for today's show. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig and I will be back on Monday with the final four college football playoff and much, much, much more. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.